Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. <laughs> All right, so today, today, I know, it's, I don't know, what is this, day, day three on Bathsheba? I think, I think so. This is, uh, this is awesome. I mean, it's not an awesome story. I mean, obviously, this is the fall, right? This is this is what's considered the downfall of David. The, there are many who look at this and they will teach it in a manner that says, you know, everything was going great for the nation, then David messed up, and and the nation is is now a nation of turmoil. And from the narrative perspective, there is some truth to that. Uh, you know, after this event, uh, the nation does start to start to experience some some rumblings. But I don't. This is this is uh, this is true. <laughs> it's true. I don't think David. He, uh, I don't think David understood under calculated understood calculated. I don't know. Somehow, the relational impact of what he was doing. Uh, was I think uh, optimistic, and and this is true for for most people in sexual sin. When I've well, I've dealt with them, no, but my <laughs> it sounds so rude, right? Well, when I've dealt with people in sexual sin, this is what they tell me. As I listen to people's stories, most people involved in sexual thing sin, if they get caught think it'll still work out as a matter of fact some men that i that i know but but others that i've just heard about or read their stories they get involved in and and by sexual sin i don't just mean physically i also mean pornography they get involved at the at these levels of fantasy and in the fantasy you're you start to normalize your behavior and it becomes it becomes so acceptable to you that you think this is normal and if somebody does find out what i'm doing then i'll just be like what's your problem this is normal you know everyone does this everyone has done this it's not a big deal uh you know get over it or Fine, look, I'm really, really sorry. I won't do it again. Let's just, you know, pretend it never happened. The The relational impact is usually optimistically not going to be a problem or it's not even considered. Like it's 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 irrelevant. You, you have no, no idea of the ramifications. And I went through in detail the, the three main characters that were – impacted by this male characters then of course you have Bathsheba and you've got a number of attendants and servants that are already involved in this event and I have no idea what those servants are thinking and neither do you so we get to we get to fantasize you know we get to not fantasize I guess a little bit no it's no use a different word we get to use our imagination on what they're doing I imagine some are could care less they're just like whatever, like he's the king, like whatever. If he wants to sleep with a woman, let him sleep with a woman. None of our business. And there's others who are like he shouldn't have done this. Like he has, he has other options. And they're like, buddy, yeah. Well, he's the king. She was beautiful. Whatever. It, it, it's it's a whole nother realm of relational possibilities and and imaginations that you get to go into and i i'm not going to go into it just just because uh but it i want to encourage you to ask yourself like what if i was a servant what if i was an attendant what if i was asked to retrieve the girl and bring her to the bedroom and leave her there like what 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 am I thinking? What am I saying to her? Do I care? And and I'm guessing if if you are a servant who you who would have cared, you would not have been asked to go get her. 
Like David's, David's working with incredibly loyal people. And that's why I think he's thinking, if I get caught, it'll be all right. Because all the men that are involved in this are literally, their lives belong to me. They have literally committed their lives to me. So I will tell them, this is not a big deal, and, and they'll, they'll be fine with it. I, 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 I don't like whatever I wouldn't I wouldn't doubt if Bathsheba said something to the effect of what if I get pregnant well it's not recorded I know nothing's actually recorded which again I, I pointed out is is usually it's a literary form within the within the Hebrew oral traditions that would say that she had no she bore no responsibility for the for her actions so Maybe David said, "Listen, if you get pregnant, don't don't worry about it. I'll I'll take care of you." I really believe he he set this up. This was all part of his his fantasy world. And when we broke down the you know the the words there used that he you know he sent for her and slept with her, he took her like those those words are just filled with intensity. And again, I do believe he just thought everything would work out. So she sends him a message. We're now in, uh, well, we're, uh, we're verse, uh, verse five. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So this has to be at least a month later. We, we only know that because of the bath she was taking was the ceremonial bath after her period. So she would have been incredibly fertile on that night. The Hebrewic calendar for women was very like they they kept track of their rhythm their cycles and because it had to do with with following the cleanliness uh rituals uh traditions i guess at this point but it was there there was there was things set up by the lord that was that that was in their best interest to stay clean to stay uh to you know to limit infection and to also keep track of when they were most fertile. So David finds out. She sends word. How how awesome is that? She doesn't she doesn't show up. She doesn't have access to the king. She has to send him a message. Somebody had to be called to her house, or she sends one of her servants. Go to go, you know, please deliver this to David. Next servant gets it at the palace. That servant gives it to uh, somebody who has access. Uh, I'm guessing before David doesn't just read like random notes that are sent into the palace. Somebody else read it. And they knew, oh, this one, David needs this one. Yes, bring this to him. So David puts into motion a plan. All right. It had to be when he reads this. This, you know, this has to be like the swirl of emotions. I'm caught. Uh, man, I no, I can cover this up. Oh, uh, maybe I should come clean. Maybe I should just, you know, tell tell. I mean, have you know? Uh, how do I do this? How do I do? It? Okay, no, this is the plan. The plan is this. If if she got pregnant uh, this month, you know, uh, then I was, you know, I just, oh, how do I do this? How do I cover this up? Uh, how do I cover this up? And and I believe that that internally his his gut instinct, his deep gut instinct was to come clean. I think because of his his passion for heaven, because of his passion for the Lord because of his his value of integrity and 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 what love actually does i think his his deep in in you know instinct was to come clean but I, obviously he didn't the the logical part took over his mind took over 
And then the mind, the way we're created, the mind was not designed to lead the heart. The heart is designed to be to be the lead. And I I know, I do know, oh my gosh, the books I've read, the messages I've heard on the how the evils of emotions. Oh. Right? Emotion oh no, you don't want emotions. No. Or if you you know, okay, fine, everybody has them, but you know, you, you don't you don't want to be led by your emotions. You want to be but you do. We're designed for that. You need to know. The thoughts and emotions are designed to, if they're not in sync, the emotion should is something, it's, it's a powerful thing. You can't just ignore it. And I think his first emotion was, I'm caught, like, like he, was, he was dreading it, and he felt horrible, and then he was like, all right, I need to, his mind took over, and he's like, I need to fix this problem. What's the best way? What's the best way for me to do this? What's the best way for me to clean this up? And I think he had already considered this plan. I don't. Uh, I don't think he in any way was winging this. Because if you when when you step into this kind of this kind of sin when uh, you know this kind of activity, even even with multiple wives, like he knew what he was doing was wrong. He knew that she was committed to somebody else. She was married to someone else. He didn't have the right to to take her, to rape her. He knew that. But he he had brought himself internally. He had brought himself to a place where where he was in love with her, where this made logical sense. His mind was, was, was running ahead of his heart. His heart was like, no, David, protect her. No, David, uh, you need to honor who she is. You need to recognize that what you see in her is what God has put there. Your role as king is to protect your your women and and the nation so that they can all walk in the into the identity and purpose and destiny that God's put on them. But his head was like, go for it. She's amazing. You're the man. This is going to work out great. And we can always take care of this. First first wave of protection, first wave of covering this up. Get Uriah back here. So he sends a note. David sends a, sends word to Joab, right as general. This very loyal, passionate I don't know. I mean, he's a friend at some level, uh, but he's also David. Also knows he's dangerous. Like he's somebody who uh, <laughs> he's he's a he's a pure warrior. He's he doesn't carry a lot of the the complicated layers that David does. So David knows the limits of who he is, and he's and he knows that Joab will will follow through on what David tells him to do. So he says, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, Joab sent him to David. Seems like a pretty pretty quick thing. But let's let's uh, again let's let's look at this. Now remember, Joab is the nephew of David. So this is there's family involved in this. And that's part of the part of the cover-up. David, David knows, okay, I'm gonna keep this within the family. There's gonna be bloodlines involved in this. My sister's son, Joab, send me Uriah. Joab has to know something's up. There's no way around that. Joab, like what David asks, you know, he asks for a captain, a captain of 500 men. He's like, I, I, uh, I need to talk to him. I mean, it's, it's vague. There's, there's no reason really given for it. This is basically obey me, and Joab does. And Uriah had to be confused. He's like, uh, you know, he's called back to the command tent or wherever, and uh, Joab's like, what's, uh, hey, Uriah, uh, King David wants to see you back at the palace. Why? We're not supposed to ask why. Just do it. But my men... 
Joab probably held up the note. Look it, this is the command. Our king wants you back at the palace. So Uriah heads back. And David's David's wildly optimistic that this callback would just mean, you know, uh, would, would, would basically, no one's really going to notice. Like, this wouldn't mean a lot to anyone. And no one's, no one's, uh, <clears throat> no one's going to be red flagging this or yellow flagging this. David wants to talk to Uriah. Uriah's somewhat connected to David through the mighty men and the, and, uh, the, her, uh, Ephraim and, uh, Ahithophel and all, uh, all of this, uh, Elam, sorry. All of this, uh, you know, it's just like this should be normal stuff. Like David's back at the palace. David needs needs to talk to one of the captains. <clears throat> He's the supreme commander of the military. He can do what he wants. There's gonna no one's gonna question this. I'm gonna get Uriah back here. So he does. Like this is this is again the optimism of of David, which usually comes with people who are involved in in this level of sin you just think everything's going to work out whether it's a lie that you're telling or or uh some sort of um deception i guess that's another word for lie because obviously adultery is deception rape is deception it's just a whole lot of crazy optimism that no one's going to notice this is not going to be a big deal so he gets back he gets back. He, he it probably took a couple days for for Uriah to return. I'm guessing he didn't go alone. He probably brought a couple servants with him. So he gets he gets there to David. Uriah comes to him. David David says, "So, you know, how's Joab? How are the soldiers? How's how's the war going?" Now when he asks these questions, Uriah is thinking, this is not a job for a captain of 500 people. This is a job for a messenger. And we have messengers, and they run back and forth to you. There's really no reason for me to be answering this question. But maybe it's like a general, like he's thinking, well, this is just, you know, I'm here, so he's going to ask me how the war is going. Maybe it's like asking somebody so... Hey, man, how was the trip? He's like, hey, so how's the war going? How's the siege of the city going? What's going on with Joab? Maybe he thought it was weird that he was asking about Joab. But in David's mind, David's thinking, if Joab's acting weird, I probably should know that. Did Joab tell him anything? I don't know. It's just, it's got to be a little strange. Uriah's got to be very curious. And he says to Uriah, listen, why don't you head down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent to him. What was the gift? Well, the gift was wine and food. David's thinking, I'm going to bring him here, right? This is going to work out great. Ah... Uh, I'm going to ask him how things are going at the battle. I'm going to, uh, yeah, I'm going to get him to sleep with his wife. This is the plan. He's going to get in. I'll ask him some general questions. I'll send him down to his down to his house. Uh, I'll send in some wine. He can. He and his wife can have dinner together. Uh, he'll sleep with her. That's what cover your feet means. It means uh, have sex or wash your feet. Sorry. Go down to your house, wash your feet. In other words, clean up, get yourself looking pretty and sleep with your wife. Let's have some fun here. You know, you're, you're home. Go for it. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. I think part of part of David was when he when he saw Uriah the first time, I think part of David was like, tell him. Tell him what you did. Because I think internally David's like, Uriah will be okay, okay with this. I Like Uriah loves me. He's committed to me. I'm his spiritual leader. I'm his, I'm his military leader. 
I'm his national leader. If I want to sleep with his wife, I can sleep with his wife, and there's really nothing he can do about it. So I'm just going to, maybe I should just tell him, and we'll work out, we'll just work it out. I'll tell him his wife is pregnant, and that, you know, I need him to go down and sleep with his wife to help me cover it up, and and I'll provide food and money and and education, and we'll, we'll raise his child like one of the princes, whatever. Like, there's there's... There is a logical way for him to have approached this and tried to make things right. But then his mind says, just get him to sleep with his wife and pretend none of this happened. Just get him to, to even, even if he doesn't sleep with her, at least get him into the house so that you can, you can tell people, she can tell people that he slept with her and that this child is his. This is this is the way it's going to be. So he sends him down to the house. Uriah goes and he sleeps with his servants, and that's why I think um, that's why I think he he brought other people with him. Probably at least two, if not four other guys rode with him and they would have gone to the servants quarters. And I think he went back with them and they're like, so what was it, you know, what's going on? And he's like, I, I don't know. David asked me how the battle was going. And then he told me to go home, but I'm not going home. I'm not going home. I'm going to, I'm going to be here. Why? Because this was part of the integrity that, that Uriah had. None of the men were allowed to have sexual relations with, with, their wives or with any women before they went to battle. Part of part of their whole ritual as warriors was to make sure that they were clean, they were purified before the Lord. And if I mean if you remember way back when David first ran or the second second when he actually ran from Saul and and all ultimately ended up in the uh in in the city of Gath and ended up, you know, he acted like a madman and got out of it. But if you remember, he met the priest and he told the priest he was, he was heading into battle and he needed the food from the, from the, uh, showbread from the, from the tabernacle, from the temple. And, and the priest said, have your men been purified? And David's like, yes, absolutely. We, we remain pure all the time, ready for battle. So he was saying, None of our, none of my men. Not that he had any men, because he was lying. None of my men have slept with anybody. So, Uriah, Uriah, in his integrity, and in his love for his men, and not wanting to be seen as as somebody who took advantage of this opportunity, he goes and he sleeps with the servants. Uriah's a great guy. He loves David, and he loves the country, and he loves what they're doing, and he knows what he's doing is right. He didn't want to lose the integrity that he had. So he goes and he sleeps with his men in the in the servant quarters, which were probably right next to the, to the palace so that everybody could be ready to go. And David said, uh, David was told Uriah did not go home. So this is the next day. Servants, attendants, people that are involved in this deception, they're involved in this plan. They know what David's doing. They go to David and they're like, uh, it didn't work. Uh, Uriah slept in the servants' quarters. And David's, David has to be thinking, oh, crud. Like he only needed one night. All he needed was Uriah to go sleep with his wife. And then he could say, thanks for coming. I appreciate the report. Get back there and and beat those guys up. I can't wait to ride in for victory. Like it, it was, it it was just meant to be this simple, easy cover up that literally would make the problem go away, which is usually the plan of most people that are trying to get away with something. It's like if if I could just you know tell this one lie, if I could just manipulate the circumstances in this way, boom, my problems are solved. Okay, problem was solved. David now has a choice. What do I do? Do I just tell him? He's nope. His his instinct, his his logical mind says no. Get him drunk. Send him home again tonight. So David's like, all right. 
uh, hey, haven't you just, you know, he, he meets with Uriah. Haven't you just come from the military campaign? Why didn't you go home? I mean, he's he's uh, he's pretending like this is no big deal. Like, come on, why didn't you go home? I mean, you should be, you should want, you know, your wife. I mean, come on. I mean, you've been on the military campaign. You've been without her for months now. Come on, Uriah. We both know. <laughs> that's what. That's the essence of these questions, right? Uriah's like the Ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Wow. This is this is like I I I think Uriah thought he was he was being tested. Like maybe David didn't trust his integrity. And Uriah is probably very confused. Because he has no understanding as to why David would question his integrity. So he lays it out for him. I'm not I'm not going to sleep with my wife. How could I do that? My commander, Joab, he's not sleeping with his wife. My men are sleeping in the open country. They don't even we're not even sleeping in tents. We're laying siege to the city. We're we're lying right there, you know, in the open sky. This is uh this I, I I cannot go sleep with my wife. It would make me impure. That's what the you know the ark of the Lord is involved in this. I'm not going to be the reason why somebody dies. Which is you know goes to that whole God does bad things to bad people thing that a lot of a lot of people believe. They still believe it. He's like I'm not going to be the reason. I'm not going to be the one who sins. And bring sin into the camp. They all remember the story of Achan in the in the walls of Jericho after Jericho in the battle uh, the battle of Ai. He's like, we're not. I'm not doing it. And David's like, wow. Hmm. Good answer. As surely as as you live, I will not do such a thing. He's like, I I am not only am I, am I loyal to the Lord which was the first thing you mentioned, the ark. I'm loyal to my commander, Judah. I'm loyal to my men that are camped out there and to the battle. And as long as you live, I am loyal to you. I mean, the list of of awesome things about this guy is ridiculous. And David's sitting there listening to it all. And he says, uh, all right, well, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. Wow. What what happened? Well, I think David was blown away by his answer. David was blown away, and, and he had to regroup, so he sends him out. Uriah goes probably back to the servants' quarters, and he sits there, and he waits. He has no idea... If you're a warrior and you're in battle and you're called away for apparently no reason, then you know that you're losing a level of integrity with your men. Because, I, I mean, I again, I have to go with what I've read and what I've seen and what I've discussed with people who are in the military because I've never been. But people who who leave, who take leave, who go home and then come back, there's a level of experience that they miss out on. And there's a there's a level of trust that starts to wear away when they the longer they're gone from the unit. Now it's different if the whole unit gets leave. It's different if everybody's, you know, sent off for the weekend or for a week. Or they're, you know, they're taken out of the battle zone, out of the war zone for uh, you know, for some R and R. But they do it together. It's an experience of togetherness. It's a brotherhood, a warrior brotherhood that that very few people can understand because it's intense, especially in this in this battle zone. You know, with the with the hand to hand combat, literally, you take your your life into your hands every time you go into battle. You have to fight for your life, and you fight for the life of those around you. 
and you're stabbing people and punching people and beating them with rocks and it's bloody and it's exhausting. But you do it and you do it together and when you're all done, you count each other off and you find out who made it and those who are injured and and even those that are injured and they're sent back, they many, many military stories talk about guys who who got themselves up out of bed and walked back to their their uh, their troop, their battalion, their their crew, because they did not want to be the one who didn't fight. They wanted to be with their brothers in arms. And I believe Uriah is struggling here. He he gets back and he's sitting in the servants' quarters, thinking, "I am, I am, I have no idea why I'm here. This is ridiculous." David won't even talk to me. Like I, he asked me some some basic questions that any messenger could have given him. Why am I here? So David regroups in his mind. David's like, I have got to get him to sleep with his wife. He is so filled with integrity. He's so intent on not breaking code, not breaking the rules, that the I, 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 this, is, this is the only way. If he doesn't sleep with his wife, I have no idea how to, how to cover this up. Because evidently he's decided, I'm not telling him. I can't tell him. <clears throat> so David invites him to dinner, and he ate and he drank with him, and David made him drunk. Wow. He made him drunk. There's there's a level of plan here. There's a there's a, a nuance within within the wording that says, basically, David used his influence as a commander to force Uriah to keep drinking. Come on, have another. No, no, I've had enough. No, no, no. I'm telling you, drink. So he did. And and with anything, as with, with alcohol, you just, after a while, you just keep drinking. And I'm guessing this isn't hard liquor. It's probably wine, and you could drink a lot of it. And people did drink a lot of it because water wasn't always readily available, and it wasn't always pure. So wine was there, and it was in abundance. And David kept pouring, the, having his glass poured, and Uriah got drunk. But being drunk doesn't mean you lose your integrity. You might lose your inhibitions, or you might, yeah, you become uninhibited, yeah. But you don't necessarily lose your integrity because who you are when you're drunk, they, you know, often people will say like. Alcohol brings out your true self, right? Your your filters are down. And sometimes, you know, they, they talk about people, well, he's an angry drunk. She's mean when she's drunk. Uh, and basically what they're saying is you get you get that person, you get their filters down, you get their inhibitions down, and then you find out who they really are. And then there's other people who are like, well, they're a happy drunk. <laughs> They get drunk and they just start, you know, it becomes, they're more fun to be around. For whatever reason, they're they're inhibited from being that joyful and being that much fun when they don't have alcohol. And sometimes it has to do with lust and sometimes, you know, alcohol makes people more flirty, more, more amorous. Right, they uh, they get they get a little alcohol in them, and they want to sleep with their wife or their wife or their husband, and they're like, no, like you're drunk, like this doesn't mean anything to you, and they're thinking it means everything to me. You're everything to me. <laughs> Sometimes drunks get real lovey-dovey with everybody. It's it's interesting what alcohol will do. It it basically, like I said, it lowers your inhibitions and it reveals things about you. Now, I'm not saying you should go out and get drunk to find out who you really are. You should be able to figure that out, out anyways. But we get an opportunity here to see who Uriah really is because even drunk, Uriah goes and he sleeps with, the, with the, the military servants, with his master servants. And all the servants know this. All the, all the attendants know this. They know David got him plastered. They know that Uriah still isn't going with the plan because somebody if not several people know David needs this guy to get into his house and he won't do it he crashes at the servants quarters on a mat on the ground he's like i'm not going to sleep in a bed when my men are sleeping on the ground 
even if I'm drunk. The integrity level of Uriah is off the charts. Even when his inhibitions are down, he does the right thing. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Uriah. He writes, he writes a death sentence for Uriah. He's desperate. He's desperate. He's got to make this work. There are too many people who know what happened. There are too many th- questions that will come about. Uh, David, I think, in his mind is thinking, I really, you know, I, I, I think I'm really in love. I'm willing to do anything to keep her. So what did he do? He writes up a plan. Let's see. Oh, there you go. Uh, Sorry. He writes up a plan. I was looking at my notes. I was like, what did you write, Bob? And I couldn't hardly tell because I scribbled it. But I'll get there. (laughs) He writes up a plan because I think because of Uriah's integrity, because of, of the number of people that are involved, David felt trapped. He felt trapped in his own deception. He's trapped in his own lies. And and in his mind, the only way out is to take Uriah out. And internally, he had to he had to be incredibly conflicted on this. Incredibly conflicted. And yet he lands on that, you know, he makes that final choice. He says, but Uriah committed his life to me. He said he would do anything for me. You know, we have a covenant of life and death, and I need Uriah to die. And I'm guessing logically that's how he, that's where he landed. Uriah has already technically died in his heart to me because he's one of my mighty men. So he writes a note to Joab, and again, this gets Joab more deeply involved. And he says, I want you to put him in the front where the fighting is fiercest and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, now, now, <laughs> well, uh, let me just go ahead and finish. Okay, so he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And Joab sent David a full account, and he instructed the messengers, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up, and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they should they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerobath? Didn't a woman drop a millstone from the wall so that he died in Terebez? Why did you get that close to the wall? And he asked you this and then say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. So, so, so Joab gets the message from David. I, w- I need you to send Uriah up close to the battle and then I need you to withdraw so that he's exposed and dies. Now, when you're under siege, they're, they're the... Mm, the battle plan when you're under siege looks different every time. It depends on what the city looks like. It depends on on uh, on the uh, the people that you're up against. But often, being under siege meant you would surround the city or you you know you you guarded all the gates. If you didn't have enough men to surround the whole city, because that would often make your army rather thin to get through. Because internally, if a city knew they couldn't survive or, or they were of a mindset that said, we're, we're still in battle, they had guards and, and military uh, archers on the walls. They had people who would throw rocks, drop rocks, sling rocks from the walls. So if you got too close, they would do that. And then they would also periodically, because you weren't that close because of the archers and the rocks uh, that would be flung at you, they would open up the gates and they would try to break through your wall. It was like a, a very violent form of Red Rover, Red Rovers, and whatever. I don't know. Do they even? They probably don't even play that game anymore because it's too violent. It was a little fun game when I was a kid. I don't know. We had a blast. But it did hurt sometimes. You did hurt your hands if, if the big kid, the really fast one, 
would come and hit you and your, you know, your friend, like you would rip your knuckles, not off, but you know what I mean? Anyways, it doesn't matter. It was so that it was not unusual to be attacked when you, when you besiege the city. I know that there are some who have taught this because I've heard them and they say like, this makes no sense to send in a military attack to a besieged city. Like you just surround it and you wait people out. That's not how it often happened. Often there was battles, daily battles. Sometimes they come out at night. So that's why the army would sleep outside. They would, there was, there was always a chance that the enemy was going to try and break them down because of supplies. They would need a supply line open up. So they would, sometimes they would, they would, they know that supplies were, you know, beyond the enemy that's besieging the city. And they would try to bust through and get the supplies back into the city. There was all kinds of things or, or they had reinforcements, but they couldn't, you know, it wasn't enough to take on the, the besieging army. So they would try to bust through and create a lane so that the reinforcements could come into the city so that they would increase their military might. It's it's all part of the military strategy. So there was there was clearly, David knew that there was battles that were going on on a regular basis. And David sends out this order that would not have been he wasn't asking Joab to do something stupid by taking on uh, an attack or taking on the wall. And as David sends this message with Uriah, he has to be thinking this, like, like part of it, part of his logic has to involve the idea that he is completely and utterly in love with Bathsheba. He is willing to kill a man of incredible integrity and an amazing warrior because of his love for Bathsheba. He had let himself become emotionally so involved with her that that in his mind, my love for her outweighs my love for for Uriah. Uriah, as as awesome as he is, has already committed his life to me and and is and is duty-bound to die for me, so I'm going to let him do his duty. I'm like the I, the logic of this. I'm again. I'm sure made sense to David because he sin always does. It always makes sense to the person doing it. It doesn't make sense when you look at it in in here. You're like, this guy's incredible. He's amazing. Why in the world would you kill him? And David's like, okay, he's he's already mine. Like his his life belongs to me. I wouldn't be surprised if David has done this before. I don't think. Well, it, it, this is just my opinion. I don't think you get to a place where you take out someone like this, who is standing in the way of your plans, if you haven't done it before. I don't think this is the first time that he's like, all right, I need to. I need to take somebody out. And I wouldn't be surprised if Joab had executed these orders before with probably lesser men. I don't I don't think this is a one-off thing. I I I don't think he did it very often, but this is just a guess on my part. Because he had other options, he had other choices to make. He could have chosen to to confess first of all. He could have chosen to work out a deal. He could have chosen to uh, demote or or retire or reject Uriah. He could have he could have made up an excuse like if he wanted to still lie and deceive, he could have lied and deceived Uriah out of the country and sent him away with Bathsheba, or sent him away and kept Bathsheba and said. Uriah was disloyal, Uriah, uh, Uriah committed treason, and he's out, and he was never one of us, he was a Hittite, and he's gone, and I'm going to take care of his wife, because I'm a great guy. Like, there's, to me, there's other, other ways to go about this, unless you've done this sort of thing before. Or at least, he's been around people that have done this before. He knows that this, internally, logically, he, he thinks this is... A plan. This is a plan that works. It's it's an extreme plan. Obviously, someone dies, but I think he's also 
in his mind deeply in love with Bathsheba. And he believes that she's the one for him. Unlike the other wives, unlike the uh, you know the concubines, she is the one that carries for him all that all that he wants. Like, oh, the I keep saying the word like, don't I? It's interesting when you're recording things and you hear yourself say stuff. It's like, wait a minute, this is actually being recorded, Bob. When it's live, people don't usually catch it, but somebody who's like listening in their ear is gonna be is going to keep thinking. He keeps saying. It's like, it's like, it's like, sorry about that. Those of you that are listening, I'll try and work on that on the fly. But I think internally he understands or he thinks he understands that love conquers all and everything will be all right. In the end, everything will be all right. She can't love him as much as she's going to love David. And he can take out her husband it's been a couple years since they've been married. She hasn't had any children yet. Maybe something's wrong with him. I love her. We made amazing love together. Clearly, this is God's will, and this is the only way to fix the problem. I have to send Uriah to his death. So Joab gets the, gets the death warrant from Uriah. And, and he walks... Uh, you know, he walks out to to Uriah, or or well, no, I don't think he walked out to. Sorry, Uriah walks in. He hands the the plans to Joab. Joab looks at it. I think he just looks at Uriah and he says, you know, go to your men. Like, fine, whatever. I don't think uh, I think Joab immediately knows David's covering up something. I'm now part of the cover up. I need to make this look good for David. And David and I can talk about this. Uncle David and I can talk about this another time. So Uriah goes and he finds his men, and his men are probably all, uh, at least those that know him well, are like making fun of him, saying things like, hey, how was your wife? Did you have a good time? And Uriah's like, I did not sleep with my wife. Ask these guys that came with me. I slept in the servants' quarters. I don't know. I really don't understand why David brought me. I, any messenger could have done what I did. I think David was testing me. He wanted to see if I was really loyal, and I refused to sleep with my wife. They're like, yeah, but, you know, did you at least get some good food? And probably talked about the food and the wine, but he said, I never slept, you know, I never slept with her. I never slept with her. So Joab draws up some plans so that it looks like a normal thing. He puts Uriah and his 500 men uh, you know, he repositions all the troops. He gets Uriah in a place where he knows the battle is fierce. So this is probably around one of the gates. And periodically, the Israelites would go in to try and take the gate, and sometimes the enemy would come out to try and, and push back. And the battle goes on. So when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, so this is, this is one of those things where probably strategically, there was, he drew the men out. He got close enough, did enough damage, and then he backed off a little bit, and the men in the city were like, let's go after them, like they're running. So they come out, and then they re-engage in battle. And and Joab, now now listen, the order the order is doesn't come from Uriah. The order comes from Joab. That's why it took a while, I think, at least a couple days to put this, this in motion. Literally now we have basically f at least four, Okay, so, uh, sorry, I, I don't know all of this for sure. This is my guess. Uriah oversees about 500 men. That we draw from historical records regarding uh, the, the men that worked under David. In that 500 men, there were probably a number of lesser commanders, captains, whatever you want to call them, lieutenants. Joab had to communicate with them that he wanted them to withdraw from the from a battle. He would let them know when. But he wanted them to withdraw from the battle and leave Uriah alone. Leave him exposed. So there's multiple people now involved in this in this in the murder of Uriah. Multiple military uh, connections 
are now loyal to Joab and to David, and they know what they're doing is wrong. They know what they're doing doesn't make military sense, but they're going to do what they're told to do because the orders are coming from David. And there's that whole military mindset that's been down through the ages. It's still to this day. It's passed on from generation to generation. This is about obedience. And if the king wants Uriah exposed in battle, then we are going to expose him in battle. So I don't know if it was a whistle, if it was a drumbeat, if it was a banner. Something had to be had to show the other men that it was time to withdraw and leave Uriah. So the, the battle becomes fierce. It's hand-to-hand combat. Everybody's doing what they need to do in order to stay alive, and the signal is given. And the men of Uriah, these are people that loved Uriah. These are people that fought with Uriah. These are people that followed Uriah, but they follow a greater call. They, they follow a, a higher authority, and they withdraw from Uriah. They, they run back, and in doing so, they expose Uriah. And when the messenger is sent, he arrives and he tells David everything that Joab told him to say. The messenger says to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back. Listen, they drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servant from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite died. So the 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 battle was this. The men of the city come out. Uriah and his men engage, and they drive them back into toward the city. And when they're close enough for the archers to start shooting at them from the walls, which is pretty close, the signal is given, and Uriah's men withdraw. Uriah didn't tell them to withdraw. Uriah's in battle. The gate is basically probably somewhat open. Uriah sees an opportunity. He wants his men to move forward. He is a, I think he's almost possessed to prove to his men that he did not engage in sexual relations with his wife, that he was a man of integrity even when he wasn't on the battlefield. This was a man I think at some level was trying to prove something. He believes that David had questioned his integrity and, and, and questioned his ability to be faithful to the call of a warrior and to the call of God, and to the call of the nation. And I think internally, because it was the only way for him to make sense of why he would be called away and given given gifts of wine and, and food to go have dinner with his wife and then made drunk the next night and told to go sleep with his wife. David made it quite clear, go have sex with your wife. And Uriah had no idea what was going on. So I think he's battling even harder than normal, and he's really pushing, and his men pull back, and he is exposed, and multiple men died, not not just Uriah, but but there were enough men that knew of the of the sub plan, of the deceptive plan that they pull back, and Uriah dies. And and Joab Joab preps the messenger. And he says, listen, when you when David hears that we lost a lot of men, he might get mad, but make sure you end the story with Uriah the Hittite died. Because that is going to calm him down. So the messenger gives, again, now the messenger didn't know the plan, but the messenger had to understand there's something unique about this. Uriah the Hittite dying. This is something that David needed to happen. This is something David needs to know. Otherwise, it's just a, just a, it's just whatever. Like it's yes, we lost 17 men. You know, I gave the list of those men are accounted for somewhere, but make sure he knows Uriah the Hittite died. And when he says that, David says, "All right, well, go back to Joab. Say, don't be upset. Sometimes people die. Just continue to attack the city and destroy it." Just, you know, encourage Joab that I'm not upset, that he made the right choice, that I'm with him on this. Again, messengers would often carry these these this dialogue back and forth between the general and the commander. 
And sometimes the commander would be upset and be like, no, you need to press. Or why did you do that? Why did you let people die? We could have held the city. We could have just besieged the city, like whatever. We could have used a different strategy. But instead, he sends them this message. Well, you know what? Sometimes that happens. The sword devours some people. It's all right. Don't worry about it. You're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. Encourage Joab that he did the right thing. And in David's mind, all is well. The, the, the saga is over. His bad choice has been erased. And life can be good. We'll pick up with the last verse of this chapter next time. It's already been 55 minutes. And there's some stuff in that last, cha- that last verse that I kind of want to go over. Uh, yeah, uh, no, you know what? It just doesn't make sense. All right, so yes, Uriah, so Bathsheba hears about her husband's death, which would have been brought to her through a different messenger. She mourns for him, which was, I believe, a week. And after she mourned for the week, David brought her into his house and he became, she became his wife and she bore him a son. And then the last phrase of the, of the, verse the last verse of this chapter says but the thing of the thing david had done displeased the lord now sometimes you know we we think well yeah he murdered somebody but it was more than that you have to you have to remember that what sin does is it destroys it destroys relationships And it wasn't just the thing. It wasn't just one thing that displeased the Lord. And it wasn't that he was disappointed and upset with David. It's that when he sees the results of sin and the way that it destroys relationships, multiple relationships, right? We, we, at least, there's at least 50 people involved in this deception and they all lose. They all start to lose relationship. They start to lose honor for one another. They lose love for one another. There, there's destroying of relationship that goes on on so many levels because of the choices David made. So remember, it's not that, that God withdraws from David. It's not that he's not available for David. It's not that his presence isn't still there for David. It's that it displeases what it displeases the Lord what he did because what David did was he he laid, you know, he he laid down his in, internal instinct for a logical, uh, a logical deception to get away with something that he didn't need, and it destroyed people, and it opened him up, and all of those relationships are now opened up to the enemy and the impact that the enemy could have on those relationships. And that is why Israel begins to, to suffer in the, uh, from this point on. It's not because God judges the nation. It's because sin judges people. Sin destroys people. Sin begins to be able to frustrate the plans and the purposes and the, and the momentum of where this nation is going. And sin will do that for you as a as an individual as well. And uh, we'll pick up there next time. I hope you guys are having a good day. And I hope we've learned something. And use your imagination. Really get the impact of the choices that were made here. Let it let your imagination run from the servants to the assistants to the military men to the lieutenants and captains, to the general, to Uriah. There's so many relational impacts in this story because of the decision of David to do something that he thought, this isn't going to hurt anyone. No one's ever going to know. All right, have a good day. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use. You can also reach out to Bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com. See you next week, guys.